careful. I saw some of you patting your foot during that one. That's a uplifting song. Appreciate the songs, Jonathan, uh, so much. And then uh, I uh, think Dalen is still, he's preaching somewhere today, isn't he? I'm going to talk about him anyway. I need to do this, and uh, we know that he's been uh, uh, occupied uh, every weekend, but most of us know Dalen Moore. Uh, Dalen, I guess, grew up his teenage years, grew up here at Summers Avenue. Of course, uh, his dad, Derek, served us as an elder for a few years, and Dalen is a a preaching student at Harding University. Well, he entered a, a competition of sorts. And so it's called the Next Gen, Next Generation Preacher Search. And so Dalen is one of 24 finalists across the country uh, in our uh, brotherhood who has been selected. Uh, he'll be going out to Pepperdine next month to uh, compete, basically. He'll be preaching in front of uh, preachers and professors and will be uh, critiqued on, uh, on uh, some format. And then uh, what they're going to do is they're going to select from those 24, they're going to select four. And those four young men are going to get the opportunity throughout this year uh, to speak at our brotherhood lectureships and and different opportunities across the country. And so this is a huge honor, and we're so proud of him. And I bring this up not just to mention that, but to let you know that you provided his airfare. And so uh, we appreciate that. Through the congregation, all of his expenses were paid, but he had to get there. And so we're flying him out to California next month. I think it's the 1st of February in just a few weeks. So Dalen's preaching somewhere every weekend, and so we don't get to see him near as much, especially with school. So, But I wanted to let you know that kind of before it happened. Uh, if you're friends with him on Facebook, you can give him a shout-out. Uh, if we do catch him on some rare occasion, uh, as he's here at Summers, uh, we can certainly mention that and, and, uh, and give him a, a good congratulations. And we're going to be prayerful. A safe trip and that he'll do the, the best that we know he's capable of doing and very hopefully can be one of those top four that will get the opportunity throughout this year uh, to preach and to teach uh, around the country at different opportunities. So we're glad for that. So uh, last week we read the first sermon preached about the resurrected Christ. We're in Acts, looking through the, some, some sections there. And so we know that after that sermon, 3,000 people who woke up that morning never imagining that they would name the name of Jesus. 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. So what happened to them? What's the rest of the story? Well, we go on in chapter 2 and verse 42. We read that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. And all who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. And every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know what y'all did during the, the, the snow days, the snow apocalypse, I guess, that we had uh, this last week. But as we were homebound, I spent some time watching Netflix. And so uh, I liked uh, Netflix, between Netflix and Amazon um, movies, I, I flipped back and forth. And so I, I like to watch documentaries and pretty interesting stuff. My problem is I, I can't remember. I can watch something so fascinating. And I'm, I really live in the moment because I can't remember the details a week later. I remember I saw it. But people are, oh, you saw that. Well, you remember this and that? No, I don't. But it was good, wasn't it? And so that's kind of the way I am. Well, I came across one 
that mentioned, uh, had a little bit of something in there about the origin of this structure, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And so built in 1889, the, the citizens of Paris were a little taken aback, uh, especially those in the, uh, the, the artsy world, those of the, the artists of the city, because they thought it was atrocious. They thought it was ugly. They hated it. They mocked it. They, they despised it. They rejected it. Can you imagine? The Eiffel Tower, I mean, a, a world icon here. But Alexander Gustav Eiffel believed in his creation, believed in his design, believed it was destined for greatness. He believed that it would ultimately be vindicated. And it was, wasn't it, as we revere it today. The church of Jesus Christ has been mocked. It's been rejected. It's been despised. But Jesus believed and believed in her and in her ultimate vindication. And he told his disciples before his death in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, he said, I tell you, this is after Peter said, you are the Christ. He said, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so he believed in the beauty of the church, maybe even more than we do, if we're really truthful about it, because Jesus understood the church is exactly what God intended for it to be. And so the church has always been God's plan A. We mentioned plan A last week. It's always been part of God's plan A. Jesus was sent not to promote spirituality. He was sent to create a new society, a new people. And that's why He didn't say, I'm going to build some Christians. He said, I will build my church. Church, in, it, in its definition, is a group of people. It's a body of people. And so it's very common to read on the Internet and the, the blogosphere. You can, you can Google all of this, but how critical people can be of the church. They have been for several years and will continue to be, no doubt. But you better be careful because the church is the bride of Christ. Scripture calls it His bride. How do you feel, those of us who are married, how do you feel when someone speaks negatively about your spouse? How does that make you feel? Jesus came to build. He came to die for. And He's coming again to claim the church. You cannot love Jesus and have contempt for His bride. And so when the Bible talks about how Jesus loves the church, it's not talking about the perfect church. There's no qualification here. Jesus loves the church. And the word church is used three ways in the Bible. It's used to describe the universal body, the church of the, the Christ all over the world, the Christians all over the world as, as they disperse themselves here from Acts chapter 2. And it's also used to indicate all the Christians that meet in a particular city like Ephesus or, or like Rome. And it's also used to indicate a group of Christians that meet within that particular city. And so you have you know, the letters that are addressed to the Christians at, at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, the church at Rome. But then even within those letters, you have like in Romans, Paul says to the, the church in the house of. The Christians in the house of. Greet so-and-so who meets in the home of. And by the way, there's only one church in this area, even though it may be numerically distributed among Summers Avenue and Sylvan Hills, and McAlmont, and Levy, or North Pulaski, or on and on. And so no matter how you use the word, church has always been flawed. And, 
forgiven and used by God to accomplish His global agenda. Because the church does not just make God look good. The church makes God look smart. Scripture tells us that. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes about the church, God's idea, this, this purpose in Christ, so that the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So something bigger than we realize is going on here in Acts chapter 2. And just like Job, Job did not realize the, 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 the cosmic dimension of the struggle that he went through. And I'm not sure we realize that when we gather together what's going on in heavenly places, the cosmic dimension of our just coming together in a moment in the morning like this, that God's using the church to educate angels and to illustrate His glory, to make known His glory, to reveal it so that a little later in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul would say in chapter 3 and verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So what's happening here in Jerusalem? Well, it didn't really make headlines in Rome all the way to the seat of the empire. It may seem very small what's going on here. But what may have seemed like only a ripple on the pond of the world at this time was, in fact, God's very big intent from the very beginning of time. And so what God started intentionally, started functioning intentionally. And so the church of Jesus Christ stresses intended. And no, I did not make up that word. I know somebody else who's used it, so I borrowed it from them. Intended, though, but this idea that when you read about this beginning, what has started out, what stands out to you has got to be their single-mindedness, their one-mindedness. The very first words that are written here about the church are these. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They're intentional to keep certain things. They're committed. And so we've studied a lot about church growth and health over the years, and your shepherds have, and your ministers together, many a meeting, many a prayer, many a book has <laughs> been passed around about this, what's going on with the church. And so you know what's been constant, though, about growing congregations? And I'm not talking necessarily about numbers, numerical growth, but spiritual growth, too. What's been constant? It's not doctrine. It's really not, because churches all over the belief map grow. They grow numerically. They multiply. And it's not really where they meet or when they meet. That doesn't seem to be the factor. The one constant in healthy churches is the practice of a strict commitment to certain things. Always doing certain things. Intentional about certain things. So what do we see here? Well, in chapter 2 and verse 42, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So they stressed intendance, devotion to these things. And they stressed intendance, which led to attendance. So they were in the Word, and they got together to receive teaching about the way of Jesus. And that was a priority for them. They were intentional about it. They devoted themselves to sharing together the Lord's Supper, as we have done this morning. That's what Luke means here by this breaking of bread. They came together 
to remember the Lord's Supper. And they committed themselves to consistent prayer. And it's some 48 times in Acts you read about somebody praying or a group praying. Prayer is mentioned specifically like 48 times here. And so they were consistent also in the way that they shared their, their money and their property. They sacrificed for one another and they were generous. And notice how they didn't do this in response to a command. We don't read leading up to verse 42 that they were commanded to do these things and so then we find them committed to do that. No. We don't read here that somebody said thou shalt. This seems to be simply the response of new creatures living this life of Jesus by influence of the Holy Spirit. I've always been accused of having a wire loose. But you know what's amazing for me is how much more I feel led by the Holy Spirit. I feel the impression of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. I don't even know how to describe it. But you're going to know in your own way what I'm talking about here. When I commit to practices that Christians have adhered to for centuries when it comes in staying in relation to God, I feel the presence of the Spirit. For instance... Sometimes I'll just randomly during the day, I'll just open the Bible up and I'll read from wherever it lands. I'll just begin reading wherever it opens to. Well, one day I I was in a mood about something, which doesn't happen very often. Y'all do not look to your right because Tressa's mouth is moving right now for some reason. So one day I opened up the Bible and I just was going to begin reading. And this is the first verse I see. I, I decided I will watch what I say and make sure I do not sin with my tongue. So I closed my Bible and I reached for another version, another translation. <laughs> but none of, every one of them said the same thing. It wouldn't let me off the hook. But I, lo- I love when that happens. And you had to have had some experience like that. When, when, when something is on your heart and your mind and you see and recognize the presence of God in your life, that, you, that prompting and that leading. And I'm continuing to find that I am led and helped when I am committed to the kinds of practices that make me more aware of His presence in my life and the world around me. And you can't help but notice their attendance included a lot of attending. And so everywhere you turn in the brotherhood, there are magazines and there are websites giving attention to the decline of the church in America. And so I think it's not so much the number of people who attend church assemblies that's in decline. I think it's how often... They attend, and you can see this in the statistics. So, for instance, you have 250 people who are members of a congregation. If in any particular month, three out of four of those weekends, somebody's gone, the average attendance is 187. And so then if they're gone two out of four weekends, the average attendance is 125, and everybody says the church is in decline. Well, no, not really. It's not in decline. It has as many people as it ever did. They're just not there as much. And so we live in a culture where we are sick and where we have vacations and where we have needs to get away to the lake. We just need to be out of town or away. Sometimes we stay up late and we're tired and sometimes the kids have sports. But we think that we're more committed than ever to the church. But watch what happens when it rains on Sunday morning. 
Because the rain that will not keep you away from work, the rain that won't keep you away from the movies or the concert that I've bought tickets for and spent a lot of money for, the rain that won't keep me away from my kid's sporting event will keep me home from church. And I saw a study about children whose families consider themselves active church members. And I found out that between vacation and sickness and sporting events and, and, and life that happens, the average child only attends church 1.4 times a month. You know there's got to be a decibel when they're doing statistics. One and a half times a month, the average child attends church of families who see themselves as committed church people. Which means the average child spends more hours each week in front of a television or electronic device than they are in a year in church, with the church. And I, I am not trying to make you feel guilty. Because brothers and sisters, I know good and well that some of you, the greatest effort you have put forth this week and will put forth this week to come is to be here this morning. I know that. I am not trying to make you feel guilty. I am just hoping to make us think. I just want us to think. Because if what we're doing right now wasn't important, if hearing preaching and teaching and having shared together in this time of Lord's Supper and come to Bible class and being together, communing together, if worshiping God, if, if seeing each other wasn't important, then why is Satan trying to outlaw it in every possible place in country across this world that he can? Why are people having to hide in basements in darkness, to worship God if it's not important. Because Satan is trying to make it where we don't think it's important and where we can't do it. So he's trying to twist this notion of separation of church and state into something it was never intended to be. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, we read that Jesus traveled to Nazareth, the town where he grew up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as he always did, as was his custom. So Jesus had been devoted to this regular, consistent worship with other people. We cannot stay spiritually fit if we are spiritually undisciplined. And so it also doesn't just help our fitness. It helps our witness to those around us. And so as these ripples of faith move outward, they create more ripples. And this should be persistent in the church. And the church should be persistent about making more disciples. The church didn't begin by having a mission as much as Jesus' mission had a church. And so in verse 47, as the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And a little later you'll see the, the specific number, 5,000 men, because that's all they recorded. So you figure up how many women were there and probably you know young adults and all. How many people were baptized a little bit later that it mentions there? And then a little later it says the number of disciples increased greatly. And so the church is exploding here and growing at a rapid rate. And a little later Paul will come back from a mission trip and he says, Brethren, let me tell you about all of the people who were baptized, who became Christians on my mission trip. And the church says, Well, Paul, let us tell you about all the people who became Christians while you were gone on that mission trip. All the people who were added to the church here while you were away. So they weren't afraid to talk about church growth because they understood every metaphor that Jesus used for the kingdom was about church growth. And as Tommy reminded us this morning in his thoughts, God's kingdom has come. It is the church. And it is eternal. The kingdom's like a seed, Jesus would say. 
which becomes a big tree. The kingdom's like a field, which becomes a big harvest. And in heaven they rejoice, he would say, when one lost sheep gets found. And so Jesus said the kingdom is like a man who threw a banquet. And all of those invited guests said, I'm too busy. It's raining. (laughs) And so Jesus said, you go out into the streets and you compel others, you compel everybody to come in to my feast, to my banquet, to my house, so that my house will be filled. Because a a living, Spirit-led church wants a full house. And that's why we must make certain that the preferences of the found are not relieving the burden for the lost. And nobody says they're against church growth. But the personal growth that it takes to accommodate new believers... To bear with the infant in Christ. Because infants are hard work. <laughs> infants are hard work. They're time consuming. Babies are time consuming. You can't just put an infant in a corner and expect them to fend for themselves. There were 20 lifeboats on the Titanic. There were enough on the Titanic when she set sail for roughly half of the passengers that she carried. And then on that faithful night in the Atlantic when the ship went down and the rescue boats showed up and started gathering the survivors from the life rafts, even the more tragic news than the ship going down was the fact that the lifeboats, the majority of them, were only half filled, if even that much. Because people already in the boat were afraid what would happen to them if they went back to rescue some of the others. A Spirit-filled church carries this burden that there are more people that need Jesus and that God wants more children. That God wants a full house. So He's looking for families that will make room for them. When I read the Bible that the Lord was adding daily, those who were being saved. I wonder, is that an exception? When I read that, and when we've, we've read it so many times, those of us who've grown up in the church, we read through that and we really kind of read over. The Lord was adding daily to the number of those who were being saved. Oh, yeah, yeah, we move on. So I wonder, was that just them? Was that then? Was that just some miraculous event that was a one-time mark in history? Or is it that a Spirit-filled church is insistent that discipleship is a team sport. God saves everyone individually. It's my decision, your decision to come to Christ. But where in Scripture does it tell that He saves them independently? So the very first record of the church, this thing God has planned from the beginning, His plan A, the very first description of the church written by one of the most detailed, oriented, Spirit-inspired men to write this Scripture. Luke, Luke the physician, the, the detail-minded Luke. How is it that not one single person is mentioned in this section? Not one single person is highlighted. Not one person drawn out. Because we must resist and we must rebuke the spirit of consumerism and individualism that dominates cultures like ours. 
And you hear it in the language like, well, I'm, we're just church shopping. We're just looking around. Or I didn't get anything out of that service today. And we hear those comments. Do we ever hear fathers or husbands, mothers? Do we ever hear children saying, I'm not getting very much out of this family, so I'm going I'm to go look for a different family. Do we hear that? Yes, yeah, sadly we do. We hear it too often. And so we kind of overlook it in the church. They were devoted to fellowship. All believers were together. They ate together. This was a we movement, not a me movement. So the church is not a place you go to. It's a people you belong to. And what does the New Testament tell us to do? To become more like Jesus all by ourselves. What does it say? There are over 30 commands in Scripture that you cannot obey if you don't have a faith community. Church is not just a place where a whole bunch of strangers get together. And again, please do not hear this as an indictment. Do not hear this as a finger pointing from me. Unless it needs to be. These first Christians met to serve one another. They met to encourage one another. They mourned with one another. To bear one another's burdens, they came together. And we need to be assured, and we need to be reminded, and we need to be encouraged that the church does people better than any organization in the world. The body of Christ is the people business. We're not just about the people business. We are the people business. And more than that, we're in the soul business because that's what our head, that's what our CEO, that's his business. So it's ours too. And when it does, when the church embraces this, then the witness is like ripples on the water carrying its influence through you and through me to, to parts of this life's pond that only you can reach and only I can reach. Praising God and having favor with all the people, Scripture says. The world is never going to fully embrace what we stand for as church. It never will. They may not approve of all of our teaching, our doctrine, and they may not ever need to. They should never disapprove of the way we treat people. It's one thing they should never disapprove of. So when the world looks at the church, they should have to acknowledge that's a place of love. That's a place of family. That's a, a community of joy. That place is the church. And with all her flaws, there is nothing in the world more beautiful than the body of Christ. And when Christ comes again, and He is coming again, He has promised us that. He's coming for one thing. He's coming for His bride. He's coming for His church. And so we should be devoted to helping her unleash her full potential. So let me encourage you. Let me challenge you. Intend to attend. And we can all decide, I'm, I'm going to be more committed to consistent participation in the life of my congregation. We cannot all be at everything Every time. We cannot. But as we begin this new year, I'm going to look in myself. Look into yourself. How can I do better this year? How can I be more committed this year 
to the body of Christ. Specifically, if you are a member of Summers Avenue, how can I be more committed as you look around this auditorium to this fam- my family, my brothers and sisters, here in my house, this wood and brick, God's spiritual house. I was raised in a home where church was a priority. Whether it was worship, whether it was a potluck gathering, whether it was some activity, it was a priority. I didn't always like it, especially as a young kid, a teenager, even a 20-something. A lot of things to do, a lot of plans, a lot of friends, a lot of places. didn't always like it, but I appreciated it. And it has influenced my life because I've grown up understanding that the church is not about me. Church is not about me. And Tress and I have made a commitment as a family that our children are going to have their hobbies, they're going to have their friends, but they're also going to have a home where church as a family comes first. And it's a challenge, just as it can be a challenge for you. There's a reason God wants us to come together regularly. and We read it earlier. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that D is capitalized, that's eternity, that's judgment day. Encouraging, reminding, pushing forward one another, even more so as we draw closer to eternity. How can you receive blessing from the church. Well, first of all, you can intend to attend and then you can decide to be a blessing. Decide to be a blessing. Who can I encourage today? Who can I love today? Who can I welcome today? Because that's what our Savior wants His family to be like. And finally, although family is about we, it has to start with me. It has to be a personal decision, a personal choice. Because we cannot make it for each other. Although we can encourage one another, the decision has to be mine. And first and foremost, remembering that the Lord was adding daily to His family, to the church, those who were being saved, those who were coming to Christ Jesus. The greatest decision you can make is to give your life to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. and Be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and which is a key that unlocks the door and invites you into the family of God, into His house. He adds you to His church, the body of Christ. This morning, if you have not done that, why do you wait? And this morning, church, family, Members at Summers Avenue, I want to encourage us and challenge us to hold each other accountable this year. And all the more so as we see the day approaching. Let's make 2018 the best year yet as a family of believers here at Summers Avenue. And this morning, while we're assembled as family, if we can pray for you in any way to encourage you to live the way Christ has called you to live, to live as the body of Christ, to be His voice, His hands, His feet in the world, and to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters. We're going to stand and sing a song. If we can help you in any way, will you come and let us do that while we stand and sing?